to make sure that, that everyone gets counted. The effect is profound. In West Sacramento, it's a life or death issue in terms of funding our flood protection improvements, but also to provide basic services to everyone in the community. Welcome to Majority Minority, the show about people of color changing the face of politics. I'm Bill Douglas. And I'm Frank Ordonez. You just heard from Mayor Christopher Cabaldon of West Sacramento. He joined us to talk about the Trump administration's controversial move to put a citizenship question on the 2020 census. We've contained this question that's provided data that's necessary specifically to help us better comply with the Voting Rights Act. We're here to look at why this has become such a political firestorm and how it could impact the immigrant and minority communities. We as a people will get to the promised land. Then, as we approach the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., what it shows about the ongoing battle for civil rights in America on Majority Minority. We're here talking about the administration adding the citizenship question to the census. We wanted to talk to you about this issue. This is an issue that is very important. A lot of people understand that it's important, but they don't really know why. Um, Can you tell us... Uh, as the mayor of West Sacramento, why this concerns you? You know, when, when we're deciding, okay, okay where's the next school going to get built? We need to know where the people are, not not there, anything else about them, but where they are, how old they are, basically. Uh, when we're having to set a new fire station or, or determining after a disaster, where do we send in the uh, first responders or, or where do we start rebuilding? First, we're paying attention to where's the number of people. So that has real, real consequences on the ground. The other is that everyone else uses it to decide how much money to give us to, in order to support our basic services. So whether that's uh, building a highway or getting federal or state funding for things like a new school, the first question always is, you know, how many people do you have in your city or how many in the census tract um, are there in order to fund that? My city is completely surrounded by levees, as an example, and we're trying to get federal funding in order to support that. In order to get money for a levy, you have to satisfy a benefit-cost ratio requirement, and the benefit gets determined by how many people are in your city. The very real consequence, if we don't count everybody in the city, we may not be able to protect, uh, fix our levies, and therefore everyone, citizen or not, immigrant or not, everyone is at risk as a result of a systematic and kind of intentional undercount. Can, you, can we dig into that levy question a little bit? How, how important is that levy to the city of West Sacramento? How important is that funding, what is the real potential impacts with that levy? And if that levy is not properly constructed, what could happen? You know, the Sacramento region is is second only to New Orleans in terms of flood risk in the country. And my city is entirely surrounded by levees. Uh, So every every levy really matters because water could come from anywhere. And the federal government generally is the partner for between 50 and 70 percent of the cost of a levy. And ours is over a billion, maybe a billion and a half dollars. And we're a small city, so that's, that's a huge amount of money. We could never afford to fix the levies entirely on our own. So the federal government's a key partner in that work. But they only fund levies to the extent to which the benefit of, of fixing a levy outweighs the cost. That makes sense. But they calculate the benefit based on, you know, kind of how much is the property value, what critical resources are there, and most importantly, how many people are there. And so the extent to which not all of our people are counted, our eligibility for those funds is diminished. And the potential uh, consequence then is literally life-threatening. Why do you think this question is coming up now? I don't think there's any question that it's completely politically motivated for the purpose of not counting folks who are not citizens, but just as likely people who are just afraid of the question, which the Census Bureau's research has clearly shown is the case, that at no time 
since the Census Bureau has been pre-testing the census, have people been so worried and anxious about whether or not answering the census was going to result in some sort of adverse action to them? And, and they're not wrong. I mean, given the kind of arbitrary and capricious deportations and other actions, you know, where, where parents are being pulled away from their kids or veterans or folks who've been here for 35 years and have no criminal record, not even a traffic ticket. I mean, just the, the anxiety is not misplaced. And the anxiety is going to uh, result in a large undercount that's systematic um, and that will be happening, especially in cities. As a result, I think the, the intention for the Justice Department and for the administration is reduce the count in the places that would otherwise be, you know, potentially voting Democratic. But that's, the census is not a toy. It's not a tool for any administration. Gerrymandering and, uh, and all those other sorts of, of ways to which the census can be abused are really not even secondary. They, they're not even on the list um, compared to the essential public services and safety and infrastructure that the census really drives in America. So what have your constituents told you about this? My constituents, for the most part, know nothing about it. They're not talking about this. Can you talk a little bit about the demographics, if they're not answering these questions, or why they might not want to answer these questions, and how it could impact them specifically? Yeah, we're, we're, West Sacramento is kind of a half California, half America <laughs> in terms right. of our pockets of Hmong and Mien and uh, immigrants from Laos, uh, a large Latino community, and folks from all other parts of Asia, and increasingly, you know, refugees from Africa and elsewhere in the, in the world. So we, we've got everything in the, in the community. And folks are concerned about any government questions around citizenship or naturalization status or foreign-born status or what have you. And not just the census, but when we ask, you know, we might be asking for the purpose of providing a service and people are just very anxious about answering any government questions at all. So the census is already going to be a challenge. Filling out the census is an obligation that we have as Americans. It's not a benefit. And when someone else doesn't fill it out and we don't get the resources, everybody in the community suffers. Um, you know, the Little League opening two weeks ago and, you know, the folks working in the stack bar, some of the assistant coaches, they've seen folks not be able to get back in the country during the Muslim travel ban period or their kids in school every day that tell me they're afraid. They see the stories and they're worried that their mom isn't going to come home one day. Immigrants are, are fully integrated and a complete part of the fabric of what makes a community work, whether it's a little league or the church deacon or, or the folks, uh, you know, somebody that, that, uh, that sits and has coffee with you at the local coffee shop. They're part of the community. And so uh, these issues matter to us in terms of the equity of getting counted as well as in terms of the, the full and complete count for services. So I want to circle back to something you said earlier. Do you think this is an effort to sort of politically thin the herd? Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. There have been little attempts to even justify it in any other way. You know, most of the folks um, in the administration that have talked about this or, or you know, folks on the extreme end of the congressional spectrum have described it in this way. You know, you know we're going to be able to isolate out non-citizens from the count and therefore reduce the numbers that are uh, in terms of assigning the number of congressional representatives to, to California and to New York and to other states around the country. Um, of course, ignoring that that's also going to affect Texas and Florida and other states that may be on the other side of the political spectrum. But it's clearly the intent, both nationally and then to affect make permanent the gerrymandering that's occurred in state legislatures across the country, to make that permanent by simply sticking our head in the sand and pretending that there's this whole underground society of Americans that isn't there. But what about what the White House is saying in the press briefing that Sarah Sanders was saying, look, this question has been included in every census since 1965, except for 2010. These are citizens. Why shouldn't we be counting them? 
Well, first, that's not true. I, I was born in 1965, and uh, uh, the, the citizenship question hasn't been part of the core census, but the part of the census that every American answers since 1950. So it's been part of other surveys that the Census Bureau conducts. For a time, it was a portion, a part of the long form that a random sample of Americans used to get for the census, but that, that long form doesn't exist. We, we do ask citizenship questions. Um, the, the Census Bureau runs the American Community Survey every single year, where it asks a whole lot of stuff of Americans in order to get a, a richer picture of who Americans are. But the census itself is not about that. The census itself is about counting the number of people and where they are. So it's just not true that it's been a part of it. What about the White House argument that this kind of information is necessary for the Department of Justice to protect voters? Well, well, first, that's not the job of the census in this sense. In the same way that the census asks you about your income, but it's not for the purpose of the IRS. And, the, and so the short form for the census for most of American history didn't include an income question because asking about income in a very specific and direct way causes Americans to, to wonder, oh, wait, is, am, I, am I reporting the same thing to the Census Bureau that I reported to the IRS? And therefore, they don't fill it out at all. Right? And it's a small effect, but it results in another count. And so this is why the Census Bureau has a very elaborate scientific procedure over the 10 years between censuses to test questions to see what their impacts are. So the, the issues around the Voting Rights Act can be addressed through the American Community Survey, which, as I say, gives you a, a picture of, 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 uh, of you know, housing conditions and commute times and everything else that the census cannot in its full glory. So you can accomplish what the Justice Department is interested in and what the Justice Department has always done through the American Community Survey. You don't need to corrupt and politicize the census in order to uh, promote uh, voting rights. Do you think this question will actually be on the census form? Do you think this will actually happen? Uh, I don't. You know, the Attorney General of California and, and, and others are a filed suit. I know many civil rights groups as well, and mayors will be supporting uh, those efforts. I think we believe that the courts will find uh, that this is uh, both the way in which the Census Bureau undertook this kind of last minute adding it on as a political move as opposed to following its own procedures, but also the, the fundamental content of violating that provision of the Constitution that says all Americans must be counted, that the courts will find that, that's, that the administration has gone way over its authority in doing this. But we're also organizing on the ground uh, to you know, that make sure that, that folks in cities in districts, both Democratic and Republican, around the country, because mayors in every state of both parties are deeply concerned about this, that they hear from us, because Congress can fix this before the courts and make it clear that America deserves, again, a full and accurate, complete census. A final thought on how people in West Sacramento could be impacted by this. In West Sacramento, it's a life or death issue in terms of funding our flood protection improvements and other essential public services. I think most of our residents are completely unaware. And because this is the, the issue of an undercount, which leads then to not getting the resources necessary to protect ourselves, and the undercount itself is caused by the addition of an innocuous question, it's, it's been a, a challenge for our local residents to see the chain of what's happening here. Um, but the, uh, the effect is profound in terms of our ability to protect ourselves, but also to just provide basic services to everyone in the community and to make sure that, that everyone gets counted. Well, Mayor, thank you very much for your time. And uh, this is an issue we'll be paying attention to going forward. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Mayor. You know, one thing supporters of the question aren't seeing is why people are so up in arms. Not everything has to be apocalyptic. The other side is just so over the top with this that I don't get it. That's Mike Gonzalez. He's a senior fellow at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. He's also an immigrant from Cuba, and we felt it was important to have him on to explain why the administration should include this question. 
Mike Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us. As you know, there are a lot of concerns among some groups that work with immigrants and minorities about this. Why should they not be as concerned as they are? Well, they say they're concerned. I, you have to wonder, given the, the completely over-the-top overreaction to this kind of small change, they're saying that, A, that this will lead to an undercount of certain populations, but they, they present no evidence whatsoever. They haven't presented any evidence. I've even looked at the focus groups they present, and, and there is no evidence that to show that this will lead to an undercount. Their thesis, unproven, they say this is unconstitutional because the enumeration mandated by the, the Constitution and the Census Act says that the total population should be counted. But the total population will be counted. This is only one question that will be added. The suit that was issued by the Attorney General of California, it's frivolous and without merit. And what the administration should do is demand uh, expedited review by the Supreme Court. Why should the administration do this? You know, their position is that this will help them with enforcement of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I've talked to people who have worked in the Justice Department who say that it is true that in certain cases that involve the the dilution of votes, having a count of the voting age population does help. You know, I'm not a lawyer. I can only go by what these veterans have told me. This is a very run-of-the-mill question that was included in the census without any controversy from 1890 to 1950. Uh, and, and let me just take a moment here to explain that 1890, 1900, 1910, 1920 were the years where we had the highest percentage of the foreign-born population, higher than today. It ends in 1950 because we were then at a very low point in the foreign-born population because of a law that was passed in 1924 restricting immigration. However, the question that migrates to the long-form census, there are several censuses, and it was a long-form census. The question on citizenship stayed in the long-form census till 2000. The long-form was discontinued and replaced with the American Community Survey in 2005. goes out rotationally every year. It is still there. And there is no evidence whatsoever that the inclusion of the, of the citizenship question in the ACS has led to any undercount whatsoever. A couple of questions here. One, you, you've got some critics, and yes, some of these critics are from, from groups who have a different view from, from yours and from Heritage Foundation. But you also have letters signed from the U.S. Conference of Mayors among those who signed the letter were Republican mayors who feel that this will hurt their communities. This will impact how some things get funded. But also you you have some concerns about whether or not this is an end around, an end around on redistricting, an end around on gerrymandering. And some even wonder whether or not it's an end around on the Constitution, which states that all people shall be counted. I, I know they're saying that, and all people will be enumerated. Right now, the census asks all manner of very invasive questions, including questions on ethnicities that were created by the bureaucracy in the 70s, pan-ethnicities like Hispanics and Asians and Pacific Islanders that, that really have no basis in any science and any anthropology that were crafted, confected by bureaucrats and activists in the 70s. They, and a lot of people are bothered by these questions, by the way. So if you want to talk about questions that bother people Let's talk about those questions that shouldn't be in the census. We're a republic of citizens. I don't know the motivations. I don't have godlike powers to look into the heart of the people who are raising these concerns. All I can tell you is that 
come forward and show me the numbers, show me the evidence. There isn't any, nor do they prefer to show any metric. You know, Franco, not everyone feels the same way. Arturo Vargas is the executive director of the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials. We spoke to him earlier. What do you say to the administration and supporters of adding the citizenship question saying, of course, we want to add the citizenship question. We do it in the American Community Survey. Other countries are doing the same thing. And of course, we want to give greater weight to citizens than non-citizens. The Constitution doesn't make that distinction. In fact, that would be unconstitutional to give greater weight to citizens and non-citizens in the census because the Constitution is very clear. It says an enumeration of all persons. So if people don't fill out the census, what happens and what is the result of that? The result of any effort to undermine or sabotage or frustrate the Census Bureau's efforts will be an inaccurate and a flawed census. And that hurts everybody because everywhere in a community where somebody lives and is not counted, that community will not receive its fair share of political representation and resources that are allocated by the federal government to states and localities using census data. It hurts everybody. Well, what do you think the motivation is? What do you think is motivating the Trump administration to add this question? Well, there can only be one conclusion. The administration wants to create an environment in which people will be fearful and intimidated to participate in the 2020 census. Why does that matter? How is that effective for their side? Well, I know that there is a movement in this country to try to reduce the number of people of color, of immigrants, and there's no better way to make people disappear than to not count them in a census and to make them afraid to participate in the census. And adding this kind of a loaded question in 2018 in the current political environment will be very effective in doing just that. So the Voting Rights Act, the census impacts that. So in essence, the census is not just a body count. It's also a civil rights issue, correct? The census is fundamentally a civil rights issue because the data that are collected are used to enforce civil rights laws. And this is why the Department of Justice argument for a citizenship question on the 100% questionnaire is really turning this argument on its head because ever since the inception of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, the data that have been used to enforce the Voting Rights Act have been the citizenship data collected on the long forms in the 1970, 80, 90, 2000 censuses and the American Community Survey beginning in 2005. And every single federal lawsuit filed to uphold the Voting Rights Act relied on those data. The Department of Justice is saying that it needs different data. And when I review the work of this particular Justice Department under Attorney General Jeff Sessions, I don't believe that they have the best interests of Latinos and African-American voters in mind. Mike, it's clear it's a pretty contentious issue. Being a citizen implies a heavy burden. I, I'm a bit flabbergasted, actually, by the over-the-top reaction from the other side. And I can only say it, it is on, on a par with the way they have reacted to John Bolton, to net neutrality, to everything this administration does. I get it that Donald Trump is controversial and that everyone likes him, but he is the president. You know, when he names somebody to the Broadcasting Board of Governors, it's not the end of times. It's not, not everything has to be apocalyptic. The other side is just so over the top with this 
that I don't get it. Can, can I ask one thing that uh, the White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders repeated on Tuesday about this was that this question would help enforce the Voting Rights Act. Can you unwrap that for me? The Justice Department, in its request, in a letter to Ron Jarman, the, the acting secretary of the census, the acting uh, 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 director of the census, said, we need this question because when we're trying to determine cases of voter dilution, this is the metric that, that federal courts have identified as the proper metric for us to know if voters of a certain ethnic or racial group, their votes are being diluted. And that's the rationale they gave. I mean, like one of the comments is that they're afraid that, that other immigrants, maybe more newly arrived immigrants, will be afraid to answer questions. And, and we talked to a mayor earlier um, who said this may not only impact um, the census surveys, but it could also impact municipal workers and city workers when they ask questions about whether it's the IRS or other issues. Is that not something you see? Yeah. I, and again, <laughs> you know, I have to go back. Show me the money. Give me a scintilla of evidence. Don't tell me about your feelings. Show me any evidence that you can show that this is the case. Sorry, I'm, I don't mean to be circular, but there isn't any evidence that people do not respond to the ACS because it's a question of citizenship. There isn't any evidence that the Greeks and the Armenians and the Syrians and the, the, the people from the East, East European shtetls at the turn of the last century did not vote or were not counted because it was a question of citizenship. Only here, at this point in time, would this be a controversy? This is included in many censuses around the world. We need to get a grip. Bill, this idea of the citizenship question as a civil rights issue sticks out to me, especially now as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Now we're here with Leonard Pitts, a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist here at the Miami Herald. He spent some time in Memphis recently working on a story about King's legacy and modern day civil rights leaders. Leonard, thanks for uh, joining us on the show uh, to talk a little bit about the citizenship question on the census. Can, can, can I just ask you about the citizenship question? What do you think? I think that it is yet another transparent attempt by conservative Republicans to win through subterfuge what they cannot win head on. The demographic to which they appeal, the fabled angry white male, is a shrinking part, a shrinking component of the electorate. So they have been trying by hook and or crook for a while now to find ways uh, around that. Rather than seeking ways to broaden their own, their appeal and perhaps appeal to the angry white guy, maybe the angry black guy, the angry, you know, Native American guy, uh, they have chosen to double down on trying to uh, to shrink the electorate and to... to, to uh, to make it more difficult for other people, one, to vote, or two, in this case, to to have uh, the representation that their numbers would otherwise uh, demand. So what's, what's wrong with asking a citizenship question? I mean, why, why does that seem to be such a big deal? Well, I mean, first of all, they've already got the information. They've got uh, access to that on the uh, statistical modeling that they do in between the the actual census, which is every 10 years. So there's not really a crying need for for asking, you know, for citizenship. They've already got it. The reason that it's a big deal is because it is likely intentionally calculated to frighten off citizens in Hispanic communities, particularly in the, uh, the West and the Southwest, to frighten them off from being counted for fear that, okay, if I say that, you know, the so-and-so is in my house or, or that such and such number of non-citizens is in my house, then ICE is going to descend on us and there's going to be a raid and, 
you know, things are going to happen. So as a result, communities are undercounted, and the undercounting of certain communities has been a perennial problem with the census anyway. But as a result, certain communities are under are undercounted. Then when it comes time to apportion representation in Congress, particularly the House of Representatives, or specifically the House of Representatives, uh, they don't get the numbers that they're supposed to get. Have we seen anything like this before? We have seen a history, and not specifically the census that I know of, but we have seen a long history of using putatively non-racial, cultural-specific legislation and, and policies to achieve racial <laughs> and, and cultural aims. I mean, that's what the grandfather clauses were uh, over 100 years ago. That's what uh, the poll taxes were. Uh, that's what voter ID laws represent. All of these are ways by which those who have not bothered to try to tailor their appeal to racial or cultural minorities seek to use laws that, that, that don't have. That there, there's no law that says they, they've, they've not written a law, at least not in a long time, that says black people can't vote. But they try to tailor the laws that are written in such a way that they will have a disproportionate impact on black people or on brown people or on whomever. Now, you're here, you just got back from Memphis to do some reporting and some writing about the 50th anniversary of the assassination of, of, of Dr. King. How is that framed in, in what we see with the question about citizenship? Well, I think that if you look at Dr. King's legacy, there's great victories, one of which was the, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It's kind of sad to find ourselves commemorating the 50th anniversary of his murder in an atmosphere in which the Voting Rights Act has been gutted. And yet, at the same time, getting back to the census uh, question, there is sufficient hypocrisy and lack of shame on the part of the administration that uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions can sell this blatant attempt to deny representation to certain groups of people as an, as an attempt to enforce or strengthen the Voting Rights Act. There's a there's a an incredible shamelessness and an incredible gall uh, in all of this that uh, is frustrating to live through, but is going to make jaw-dropping reading in the history books 30 or 40 years from now, assuming people still know how to read 30 or 40 years from now, but that's another question. <laughs> now, speaking of history, on your trip to Memphis, what did you do and what, what, what did you find? I interviewed uh, a trio of young activists. The story that I'm working on deals with the fact that uh, we are seeing, uh, and it's, it really hasn't been reported or, or framed as such, but over the last 10 years, we are seeing a real resurgence of activism like we haven't seen in this country since the uh, 1960s. It's not, you know, it's not just African-American. It's the Me Too movement. It's the Occupy movement. It's the Fight for 15, et cetera, et cetera. But then it's also African-American. You've got the, the movement that having the statues taken down. You've got the uprisings in Baltimore, Ferguson, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, New York, et cetera, et cetera, over uh, police uh, shooting of unarmed African-American men. And you've got Re Reverend William Barber uh, reigniting King's last campaign, which was the uh, the Poor People's Campaign. So what I wanted to do was look at this, this new golden age of activism and talk to some of the young activists who are essentially picking up the gauntlet, which had not really been, there, there hadn't been this level of activism in this country since probably the 60s and 70s, the last of the, of the great, you know, anti-war movements. Obviously, there were, there's occasional marches. Uh, Jesse Jackson 
Jackson or Al Sharpton, particularly in the African-American community, would, would occasionally lead something. But you didn't see a, con- a confluence of activism like this. There's, a, there's an upset and an unrest among the people that I don't think has been fully appreciated. Yeah, I didn't fully appreciate it until I sat down to write this piece and began to just start listing all of the activist movements, all of the protests that we've seen since, let's say, uh, you know, the last 10 years. And it's, it's a lot. So you're so you're one of the best wordsmiths oh, uh, that I know of. You're, and, you're and, blushing, and certainly <laughs> certainly in our company. Can you articulate uh-huh. why we are seeing what is driving this uh, increase in activism? I interviewed a Reverend Earl Fisher in Memphis who pointed out that there is a uh, sense that after uh, President Obama was was elected and black people were in celebratory mode and then at some point with the treatment, with the uh, implicit and, and explicit uh, racist treatment of the president day after day, year after year by his political opponents, they came to understand that we're, we're still black and this is still America, I believe was his quote. And that's a sobering, that's a sobering uh, uh, realization and pretty much most of the people that I interviewed said some version of that. They mentioned uh, Trayvon Martin. They mentioned the Gina Six. They mentioned Shirley Sherrod. But almost to a man or to a woman, Obama's election and the response to Obama's election was sort of the uh, the one thing on, on which they all agreed. You know, white conservatives who didn't like us were organizing and and and, and doing work that, that that we you know never did. Now, we had John Lewis on as a guest last season. and you we asked lucky him, people. And he talked about a resurgence of activism. And he was surprised and pleased that one element or one avenue of this renewed activism that's taking place uh, is among black athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's a very good point because there was a time not too long ago when it was the hardest thing in the world to get an African-American athlete to sort of stand up and take a stand. And I think, you know, I, I think a lot of us have been in the, in the mind frame, a lot of us as African-Americans have been in the mindset of, of rediscovering that we're, that we're black. <laughs> in this country and just what that means. And I don't think that that black athletes have been any exception from that. So in in this new activism you're seeing and, and what you saw in Memphis, how is that new activism manifesting itself in Memphis? Well, there was a, a protest at Graceland. There was, I think, five activists arrested, and now there's a, uh, a federal civil rights uh, suit because— uh, At Elvis's house. At Elvis's house, yeah. Well, you know, the, one of the activists told me that, you know, if you're going to get attention, you've got to stop commerce. Elvis's house is one of the biggest things in Memphis, so they chose Elvis's house as the backdrop for for a demonstration. There was the uh, the uh, campaign to take down the uh, statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, who was a Confederate general, led a massacre of African Americans during the Civil War, and was an early leader of the Ku Klux Klan. So in a city of 64, 64% African Americans, you wouldn't think that'd be a problem, but it turned out to be one. Uh, you know, there was the campaign to take that down, which was successful. And then, which probably got the most national attention, there was the blocking of Interstate 40, the bridge uh, spanning the Mississippi River between Arkansas and uh, Tennessee in which uh, an impromptu group of activists, just, uh, over a thousand people, according to the press reports, took over the bridge and stopped traffic for four hours. 
And I can't say that I'd have been happy if I'd been in that traffic trying to get home. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. But having not been there, I can, in looking at it from sort of the outside, I can say what a powerful statement. And it gets back to what Keaton Franklin said about we're going to stop commerce. You're going to you're going to pay attention to this. This this was all stemming out of the uh, the police shooting of a 19 year old African American man. Uh, didn't get a whole lot of national attention, but was big locally. The DA recommended prosecution, and uh, the grand jury refused to indict. So you know. A story that we've seen many times before. So this new age of activism, how much legs does it have? I mean, are we going to see, are we going to continue to see this past this administration? And and I guess my next question is, is it the administration or is there more? Is there a movement that's beyond that that needs to be you no, know kept an eye on? It's beyond the administration. Um, I, th- I think the administration galvanized it, but you, uh, I would like to think it does. We'll see. One of the uh, things that I and some others have faulted this generation of activists on, and one of the things that I think and uh, that they're in the process of, of correcting is that they have not coupled their activism with policy prescriptions. They have not said, okay, these are the things that we, these are our demands. We, you know, we, we're upset over, let's say, uh, you know, police shootings of unarmed African-American men, but okay, what are the policy prescriptions? What are the laws that you want passed? What are the, the, the new policies that you want to see put in place with police departments? What do you want to see from the Justice Department? That's where we haven't seen as much attention paid by them as, as we should, as we'd like to. But I, I think, I like to think that's beginning to change. To harken back to Dr. King, everybody remembers the, uh, the, the Birmingham campaign and everybody's seen the, the iconic footage of the dogs and the water hoses and the people being bowled over. But sometimes we forget that that was all in support of uh, desegregating the city of Birmingham. We want to force the business leaders to the table to desegregate downtown. And two, we want to demonstrate the need for passage of a Civil Rights Act. Yeah, what do you think is the legacy and the, the main message of Dr. King? Well, let me, let me say first that I think that there is a, de- a determined effort in this country to make Martin Luther King harmless and safe. In February, his youngest child, Bernice King, tweeted something that just that stunned me and still stuns me every time I think about it. She said that somebody tweeted to her, your father didn't offend people. And, you know, that's just an amazing misremembering, but it speaks to this sort of gauzy, vague haze through which we viewed Martin Luther King. And I think that the Martin Luther King that that people often like to uh, remember, like to quote, is, as I said, a, a safe a safe Martin Luther King. He's, he's safe enough for conservatives who uh, fought him tooth and nail for everything he, he, he sought in life. He's safe enough for them or perceived to be safe enough for them to come back and, and, and quote the um, color of the skin content of the character uh, passage from the I Have a Dream speech. And I'd love one of them to someday quote what he said about uh, this country needs a, a democratic socialism. You know, I think we need to move toward democratic socialism, that the poor need a guaranteed income, that there ought to be a guaranteed income for the poor. Or to quote what he said about militarism, or to quote what he said about unions. We're in a union-busting country right now. Dr. King was very much pro-union and died fighting for the right of, of, of people to, to, to form unions. So Martin Luther King was a radical prophet. We must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution 
of political and economic power. You know, Franco, Leonard brought the census question and civil rights full circle. He definitely connected the dots between what's going on today and perhaps why this census question kind of plays into the historic moment of what's going on this week. And why it's such a politically hot button issue. Thanks very much to Christopher Cabaldon, Mike Gonzalez, Arturo Vargas, and of course, Leonard Pitts for being here. Be sure to read his story in the Miami Herald this weekend. Thanks to Jordan Marie Smith, Davin Coburn, and Ayanna Morali for producing this episode. And thank you to our listeners. We're glad to be back for season three, and we want to hear what you think about it. Find Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And we'll see you next week on Majority Minority. 